Hi, Jens here. Are you interested in innovation? This might be something for you too. Every Friday, I share the latest innovation articles, ideas, videos, books, podcasts, and more that I discovered during the week in my newsletter, Connect the Dots. If you subscribe, you will receive an email into your inbox every Friday. You can't find the newsletter anywhere else, so you have to subscribe if you want to receive it. Head over to jensheitland.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up. But now, let's get started with the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Jens Heitland Show, where I interview experts from different fields to connect the dots of innovation and entrepreneurship. My name is Jens Heitland, and I am your host. Today's guest is a serial starter, creative producer, and sometimes visiting professor. He's a partner in Shred Capital. Please welcome to the show, Matt Toner. Hello, Matt. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Great, great. It's actually a sunny day in Vancouver, which is a, a bit unusual. We're known as a rainy city. And as you can tell, today is an exception. So uh, uh, all is right in the world. Yeah, here's, here's getting summer and uh, fairly warm. I'm almost sweating here inside the whole time. Really? It's, Excellent. It's great to have you. So before we go into innovation, into business and startup worlds and sustainability topics, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What is your story? Well, you know, uh, <laughs> what's funny is when people sometimes ask me that or, you know, look at my background, they get kind of uh, confused because it's a bit of a winding road uh, from where I started to where I am today. Uh, my first professional life was as an officer in the, as a reserve officer in the Canadian Navy, which is sort of an odd place to start. But it's also, weirdly enough, one of the first places where I had the occasion to be what we would now call innovative or entrepreneurial, which is sort of funny because military institutions really are not known for that. Hmm. Uh, I went to grad school, did economics, became an economist at our central bank here in Canada, which, again, is not really necessarily thought of as an innovative place to the average person. But, you know, again, in fact, lots of interesting things happened while I was there. I then moved over to our foreign ministry, uh, became a diplomat, was posted to New York. Uh, worked at Rock Center. And when I was there, it was just when the commercial internet was taking off, mm. like just starting. And New York was first one of the hotbeds in North America where it, it, it happened quickest, you know, because of advertising and finance and, and media content. It's a, it's a center for all those things. So when my assignment uh, as a diplomat wrapped up and it was time to go back to headquarters and spend a few years, you know, being a public servant again, Uh, I went native. I decided to stay uh, in New York and and commit my career to that. And so since then, I've you know I've worked in online media. I've worked in video games. I've done mobile. I've done interactive television. I've done you know smart playgrounds more recently, and now more in the investor space. So I've pretty much ticked most of the boxes. I think I haven't quite done an NFT, but you know I've still got some time today before lunch to crank one of those out. Yeah, and uh, you know. <laughs> And that's the story. But I guess the one common thread, uh, the one common thread in my career is that there's an impatience maybe, or maybe a sense that 
more could be done or done better or why are we doing it this way? And in some places you can find, you know, as you and I have discussed, really fertile ground to be that kind of agent of change. And in other places, it's more of a, a dance, more of a negotiation, more of a slog. But, you know, you can be entrepreneurial as well as, you know, entrepreneurial and be quite successful. And I think that maybe this is a very human response to the pace of change that we're living through now. Like, you know, our grandfathers or great-grandfathers, their lives from beginning to end, pretty standard, I would yeah. say. Uh, more recently, I mean, you know, uh, what we knew even as young people compared to what we know today, very different paradigms. And there's no sign of that slowing. So, so I think having that as a part of your DNA going forward is something, you know, that'll be necessary just to even understand the world, much less contribute to it. Yeah. And it's, I work with a lot of young people and they can't even imagine that there was a time without mobile phones. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that's how we grew up. I mean, and that's just one of the technology trends, which we have experienced, which was huge. Oh, um, maybe not at that time, but it's just the acceleration of all of that is, and the behavior is changing with that. If you see right. like little kids in kindergarten start to have a, an iPhone or a smartphone, or latest in school. It's mm -hmm. huge. Yeah, changing times. Like, I mean, again, I remember late 90s seeing my uh, boss at the consulate with his first kind of issued mobile phone walking around trying to figure it out. And then just 10 years later, that's the advent of the iPhone. And those two devices are, they're like a World War One, you know, fighter plane and a, a stealth bomber, like completely different. And it happened in the blink of an eye. Yeah. And this has become the norm. Uh, my grandfather was born, uh, just to give you context, in 1887. Okay. Oui. Like that's, I was the product of a lot of uh, ongoing activity, I guess. Uh, so he remembered electricity coming to his town. And he remembered he drove the first car in his town. And, you know, he was too old to go to World War I, right? Huh. And just had this really strange life. And, you know, towards the end of it, my father asked him, because they were putting men on the moon, right? Space shuttles. And the pace of change that he saw, he just eventually just got used to it. Like, he's like, well, that's just how things are now, I guess. Like what he remembers from his youth, completely gone. But his father and his father's father would have had a very similar experience because mm -hmm. that was where the world was. So it makes you kind of wonder where the next, you know, event horizon is going to be. Yeah, it will be. Just thinking about that, think about like 40 years from now. I mean, if, if I'm, and I'm 40 right now, so if I just say, hey, I, I can properly think about the last 20 years and can remember everything, I said, and that was already huge change. If, if you now add 40 years, holy crap, that's going to yeah. be huge. <laughs> well, you know, I think in 40 years, technically, I think that's when the TV show The Jetsons is set. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think we're going to have robotic dogs and flying cars. So, might be. We, 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 yeah, why not? <laughs> well, maybe, I mean, you know, I, I think we live in an age of wonder, that's for sure. Yeah. We, so we are already bridging towards innovation. I need to, to use that as an opportunity to get into that. So let's start very, very high level. What is your perspective of innovation? So what is innovation for you? Hmm. Well, it, it's become quite a buzzword, hasn't it? Yeah. Like I think in you know, the past five years, It's, it's become slapped on almost everything, right? I'm sure if someone should do a study and look at like, you know, 
number of like Google searches using the word innovation 10 years ago and today, right? And mm -hmm. so many people now in walks of life that uh, have innovation attached to their job title now as a matter of course, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's become a term that means different things in different corporate cultures. You know, I think that there's, uh, I think the people that are really actually doing the innovation that are, you know, typically in startups or technology-based pursuits uh, are less likely to use that terminology. I think people that are more following that wave tend to use that to identify themselves as, you know, not the trailblazers maybe, but the people that are also following in the second wave, hmm. right? So it, I, I think about like almost like a culture of innovation is more important than the term. Like even within a large uh, corporate, you can have a vibrant hothouse of innovation, right? Uh, so size isn't necessarily the, the factor, but I think it's a personality approach. Like people that actually want to make a change and take on a bit of that institutional or personal or reputational risk uh, is more of a defining trait around innovation. You know, if we get away from the buzzwordiness and think about what the, the concept is supposed to mean, so you can have innovation in any walk of life, right? You know, uh, the commercialization of it, you know, the mass acceptance of it, the transformativeness of it is maybe a different uh, factor and you're going to have fertile ground or less fertile ground. But it, it is, I think, a, a, a bit of a people thing. It's the concept of personality and being in a place of empowerment at the same time where the idea is encouraged to grow. Right. I mean, it used to be, I've thought about this and, you know, you and I were talking about your, your, uh, your, your fashion line, right. And yeah. you work with large corporates, you come from a large corporate world, right. And you had a career transformation. You know, I can remember just as a matter of course, having like a closet full of suits, you know, suits, shirts, ties, that's just, you know, what you, that used to be what you wore. Mm -hmm. Right. And corporate culture or business culture was more normative then. And there's still, of course, you know, ways to, to change and inflect things, but there, I think there's more of a sense of getting along at that stage and iterative change or incremental change uh, versus holistic flip the table change, which mm. now is seen as more valuable and more prized and more heroic, right? Like we talk about the, the startup entrepreneurs that wear the purple turtlenecks or the dark turtlenecks and the little wire glasses and there's this heroic command persona and I, I don't know that, that I don't know that that's true, but we've created this archetype. Uh, it's not recognizable in culture uh, across countries, even, uh, which also is kind of interesting because uh, before, very recently, with the advent of the internet, the idea of having having a monoculture of entrepreneurship or a world culture of innovation, where we can have very similar conversations between you and I or somebody in Indonesia around, you know investment and cap tables and MVPs and things like that. Uh, that kind of networking of ideas, that common language around the concept of innovation is itself something that will fuel it, I think, because it's easier now to talk to somebody in real time and connect. And, and maybe that's even a benefit of the pandemic. I mean, in the bad old days of two years ago, uh, if you're going to do a business meeting, there's almost an expectation that you had to go there in person yeah. to be seen as serious and credible. And that, that is not true any longer. There may be a bit of a return to that, but now if you want to do a deal, when my company's done deals with people, you know, on the other side of the planet, uh, via Zoom, 
and it's it's no problem anymore. Yeah. You know, it used to be, it would have been seen as being frivolous, but now it's just seen as, oh, of course. So how does that open up more connections and more ideas around innovation? Have you ever read uh, Stephen Johnson's book, uh, How Good Ideas Happen, I think it's called? No. It's, it's an interesting book. And he talks about like proximity and density, where more intelligent, innovative, creative people are clustered together historically in places like New York or Los Angeles or London or wherever, that more ideas have more of a chance to bounce off each other and people find more kindred spirits more readily. Yeah. Maybe through things like this, you know, like even podcasts nowadays and connecting with audiences and guests around the world, uh, that also becomes true. Like, I mean, I would not have met you, I think, in normal circumstances unless I went to the right conference and you have to be there as well and we happen yeah. to connect you know, it would have been much more difficult. Whereas now, you know, you and I can literally collaborate very easily. We can literally very easily introduce ourselves to different people. You know, we have a Joshua in common. He's in South Africa. It becomes very easy to say, oh, well, you know, you should talk to him about that idea of yours. Yeah. Like yeah. this could open up a lot of space for people to really kind of pick up the baton once more and have another wave of like creativity. Hope yeah. so. I'm optimistic, but we'll see. And to, to that point, I even... I'm even that far on, on, on the other end where, where I say I've even started a business with, if you take Joshua as an example, with someone I've never met in my whole life. And we <laughs> only know us this way because we haven't been able to meet physically due to pandemic. Wow. I mean, if you just think two years ago that like everyone would call you crazy. I mean, people still do that to me right now, but more, more and more people are saying, yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it's very true, right? So, I mean, again, I think we just, this idea of a culture of innovation, like a global culture of innovation, right, um, should only yield good things, I think, for for us, you know, as a totality. Uh, because I think the idea, if you're, maybe we don't go through this phase of move fast and break things. Maybe that exuberance is yeah. maybe better tempered. But um, sort of the idea of sharing ideas and best practices and building connections and adding value through relationships. You know, I mean, like, you know, you, you folks work together, I think it's wonderful, right? Because the two bright people that are not able to collaborate and do stuff on a scale that would have been impossible for, you know, it used to be so hard to do a startup, right? Like right. just think of how Amazon web services or cloud-based computing has changed that. Like, you know, it used to be if you needed a CRM, you had to make one, you know, like nowadays the barriers to entry are so low. And it's so easy. I've literally explained to my 50-something cousin how to open up a Shopify store. Yeah. And she can just go and do that now. Like before, it would have been like mind-bogglingly impossible to do that with somebody, again, who's far away. But to get them in that position now, it's, no, no, you, you can do that. And, 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 and so can she. And that's, I mean, that's interesting because we often, I think, focus on the front runners. When it comes to change, like who are the people that are out there, you know, really moving the needle. Mm. But I think the impact on the, the slow followers, the back 20%, like measuring how much their lives and productivity have changed. Right. Like I was just uh, meditating sort of the other day. Uh, the only chance I get to think is when I go for a run. It's the only activity I could do during the pandemic. So, and I, and I hate running. I count every step It is effing torture for me. But it, but it works. And I was thinking about 
just software as a service because that, that's a fun thing. And it just occurred to me, like generationally, like when I was going through university, that whole idea that we just take for granted nowadays, that's how something can work. Science fiction, not even science fiction. Mm -hmm. No one's even mm -hmm. thinking about that. The internet was still kind of a new thing, you know? And that now there's all these enabling conditions that are just there, just like the, you know, the electricity coming out of the wall. And what will, again, people like our kids, what are they going to do in a world where they're swimming in that kind of information and those kinds of tools that are literally just there at their fingertips? Like it's, it's kind of remarkable in a sense. I mean, like word processing used to really suck, for example, you know, and that now that's just the least of things like compared to what we can do today. So it's good to take stock of that sometimes, you know, like it, it really is kind of a wonderful experience that we're all kind of going through. It's mind boggling the opportunities, young people, like not just young people, we all have right now on our fingertips. It's just taking the first step and trying to do something with, with the ideas you have. I would like mm -hmm. to, to get us a little bit into the topic of problem solving. So we have been talking about that a little bit on how, how, how do we use these opportunities and, and an innovation perspective on solving problems together? Yeah, yeah, uh, that, is, that, is, <clears throat> that is interesting. So on the one hand, uh, I look at the pandemic And obviously, most people think that their governments, their countries, their public health officials haven't done a perfect job with managing this crisis. On the other hand, look at what we were able to do collectively in the space of a little over a year in terms of coming up with crazily effective vaccines, actually having some better than others, but cogent, massive responses in terms of like social norming to, again, not to benefit, you know, everybody, but to benefit the most vulnerable in our societies, right? Immunocompromised people, older people, these are the ones that were most likely to have bad outcomes. And we all managed to pivot around and do something. In fact, some pretty big things to correct this thing in record time. So it makes me think like, you know, fundamentally innovation and startups, they're, they're based around solving problems. Like that is sort of the core of innovation is there's a pain point, can we make it better? And I think today, you know, now that we've shown what we can do vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic, you know, the biggest problem I think we face, uh, and I'm not alone in this, of course, is climate change. So can we take that same collective will and apply it now to the next defining problem? You know, the one that requires a sort of collaboration and risk-taking and changing of how we think about things uh, to pull us in that direction. I mean, one interesting byproduct um, in many countries of the pandemic was sort of the idea of a universal basic income suddenly had currency that it didn't have before because of the various programs we had to put in place just to kind of keep society from collapsing completely in some ways. I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I understand that in Germany, for example, uh, the government there actually helped pay restaurants to stay closed. Like they didn't yeah. want to lose yeah. all those business owners, but they didn't want people to be going there either. So they had to find an inventive way That would have been unthinkable in other circumstances. But now that we've used the tool, are there other uses we could put it to? So, you know, again, climate change as a, you know, societal problem on a global scale needs the same kind of collaboration and thinking. The challenge with climate change, though, is 
it's something we don't easily perceive in our event horizon. It doesn't seem like a present threat. You know, half a million people dying in, in America because of COVID, we all see the numbers and we think, okay, this is a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, climate change is going to slow roll us for a long time. But maybe now that we've seen what we can do, we can do more of that, like tackle the big problems that take a lot of different people and a lot of different tools. Maybe, or do we just kind of revert to the norm? Depends if you're optimistic or, or cynical. Yeah, it, it's to- totally valid point. And I think that's that's one of the things as well, taking the learnings from what has happened in, in this COVID environment and from a pandemic perspective into other places, into other perspectives, and then using that to solve the problems. How, how, how do you think entrepreneurs can play a role in that? Well, you know, the interesting thing about entrepreneurs is the risk takers, I think, by definition. People, you know, ascribe that behavior to them, at least, or that uh, <clears throat> that mentality. So they, they tend to be the ones to throw themselves at problems. Now, that tends to be, you know, for better or for worse, there's a, a whole pile of dead companies that try to solve the pets online problem, right? Like this, you know, we're, we're not shy about that. I think the challenge, though, is how do we rewire the incentive structure? so that those entrepreneurs that, are, that want to tackle kind of green or clean issues uh, are drawn to it. I mean, historically, the perception has been that, you know, investing in green or clean tech uh, gets a low return, mm. that on the policy side, it turns into like a subsidy race, or you get into negotiations globally, where there's lots of incentives to be the one country that doesn't cooperate, you know. But I, I think that, again, if you look at, there are some cases, though. If you think about Tesla, As an example, uh, their market success did more, I think, to drive and change the electric vehicle, you know, paradigm than years of lobbying or protests or things like that. It forced uh, the big automakers to respond to it. And there's now a Ford F-150 electric truck they just announced, which is, that's a sign of the times, hopefully. So I think that entrepreneurs and investors uh, have a role to play. Uh, where they need to show that this change is actually better and more profitable and more rewarding than policies or subsidies that just look at trying to retrieve, you know, these oil and gas reserves that may become stranded assets. We're trying to squeeze the last few, few dollars out of them. I think that we need to find better answers, right? And we need to create incentives where entrepreneurs can really get behind and, and know that's a place where they can succeed or have a shot at succeeding. Like there's no guarantees, but you know, that energy that we've uh, generated, you know, the kinds of interesting jobs and careers we're creating uh, through this, uh, the idea of empowering people to believe they can make a difference through the things that they do well, whether they're business people or technologists or what have you, I think that's a entirely useful social function. Uh, you know, the, the days of Henry Ford where People worked in factories on assembly lines and did very routine tasks. And you have this whole idea of alienation of work. Uh, I think entrepreneurship is the opposite of that. And I think if you can really harness that impulse, uh, you know, away from like making the NFT exchange, I'll slam that again, or, you know, a free to play mobile game towards something a little more uh, socially impactful, uh, you're really getting the best of both worlds. But engineering that is going to be, so far, it's proven to be a bit elusive creating those conditions uh, at scale where people feel that this is a place where the entrepreneurial impact makes a difference. Yeah. 
Well, one of the things I always say, the language of business is changing the world. So mm. it's, it's literally exactly what you're saying is how, how do we learn to speak a different language, which means we are building different businesses that enable us to do things differently and that will change the world. And that's where we need to go. Of course, capital is important to build business, but as well going a little bit a step back and looking, hey, how can we build businesses that are focused on solving the bigger problems with a purpose that's that's driving us towards that direction and not just, hey, how can I get rich as fast as possible? Yeah. Which it's it's not it's not the long-term game. And we, we all need to, as we say in Germany, touch our own nose to say, hi, what am I doing towards that direction? Hmm. Well, yeah, I think if you're an entrepreneur, I think you're allowed one <laughs> uh, startup that's just about, can I just have a gigantic financial return for everybody. I think you're allowed that karmically speaking, it's okay. But it's also good, I think, if you find ways to uh, to broaden the focus, as you say, to have a different um, a different meaning. And, and I think also drawing other people into the discussion, like you said, that would not consider themselves to be part of that reference group, but, but could be, you know, people that might have otherwise gone to a not-for-profit organization well maybe there's another way to make change or is there a way to reinvent your not-for-profit uh, in a way that does things differently right and I, I think that i think you put it really well we say the, the language of business uh can help us understand those ideas uh yeah it's, it's really kind of funny uh <clears throat> a number of years ago i got a little bit involved in politics out here on the west coast and i was using in some ways to describe situations things or circumstances using the language of business and many people uh were more social democrats and they felt that even invoking the language of business was sort of a wolf in sheep's clothing kind of tactic but you know i honestly think if you want to work with people and across lines you need to use language that is understood by them it's a form of engagement to say i understand what you mean and i'm using your own terminology to try to capture an idea or way we can work together and it cuts both ways of course but you know, the idea that, oh, you shouldn't, like, don't, like, that's not appropriate to talk about the creative economy mm. because you've got a ideological bone to pick with Richard Florida. Well, okay, you know, maybe we would learn from each other a bit more if we had more discussions. And, you know, the fact is um, business does produce a lot of outcomes, right? Business has proven very good at harnessing resources and capital and ideas. Um, and if you can apply that methodology or that way of thinking in clever ways to your, your social problem, then I think you, you, you give yourself another advantage. You give yourself another toolbox you can work with that you before perhaps hadn't considered. And, you know, I think if you want to make change, you need to be uh, agnostic and hungry and willing to consume anything in front of you that will help fuel that change you're trying to make. Yeah, absolutely. It's and it's it's it it sounds so simple when when you talk about that. It, but it, I think it's it's really difficult, or at least in my experience, it's it's really difficult. Specifically, if we take it from a from a society approach, like how can we do this again? Um, going back to the discussion we have had, is how can we do this collectively? How can we all look into doing something towards that direction? And then oh, using yeah. businesses who, of course, need to need to make money and doing, 
but with the perspective of doing something good and accelerating the good part. What what I always like like to to say and quote, quoting uh, the founder of one of the companies I've been working for, he was always saying, "There's nothing better than the good example." So building a business, like you said, Tesla, um, being a good example in one area will drive the whole industry. I mean, now, if you, if you look into Germany, the car manufacturers are looking into like Volkswagen, um, BMW, Mercedes, which are the, the bigger, bigger German ones. They're all working on this 24-7. And most probably they have been looking into that before as well. So it's not that the Tesla just... They, they just started this and, and nobody had, had heard about it. But it's, it's more now everyone is pushing and policies and, and a lot of things are going towards that direction. And I think oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he just, uh, Elon Musk just accelerated that as being the good example. So it's really how can we build businesses that are good example in different other spaces that we, that we get the same movements. Hmm. Yeah, it's a wonderful way to put it. It's a wonderful way to put it because you're right. Like people like good company, but they like to follow a good example. Like, you yeah. know, and maybe that's been sort of the role of the, you know, the entrepreneur in some ways, whatever the walk of life is to be that first good example, hmm. you know, not, not, okay, tried, failed or tried sort of hit, but yeah, you know, the one who says, no, no, this, this opens up all these frontiers, right? Like that, like suddenly the doors open for everybody. And yeah. And then there's that big, you know, sea change that we can see. And I think I mean, that's what we all kind of hope to is be part of that process, I guess. Like, you know, when I first got drawn into like the dot-com thing when it was happening in the late 90s, uh, part of the thinking was like, uh, the reason why I chose to follow that was sort of an innocuous comment a friend of mine had made. And he was commenting on why he'd left like big corporate media to go into online media, you know, leaving his office in Midtown to be in a loft in Soho. And what he said was, you know, listen, this is maybe a bit like the gold rush, but don't you want to tell your grandkids you were part of the gold rush? I mean, don't you want to be one of the people that was there when it was next to nothing? Yeah. I remember going to a conference once where people were all talking and the big topic of the day was how do we get people to go online? Like it, this is the time where the people going online was not a guarantee. You know, and, you know, happily at some point in that conversation, it shifted a bit to let's assume that happens. Then what do we do when we're all online all the time, which is where we are today. Right. But to think that not that long ago, the proposition of people being online was, a you know, a bit of a jump ball. Yeah. But now, you know, here we are now, granted, we're spending probably too much time playing, you know, Fortnite or Flappy Bird or something and you know, we're just like doom scrolling on Twitter. But, you know, the fact is we're all there now. And maybe this is a chance for us to do something collectively that's interesting. Uh, since we're all in the same place anyway, we're all living in this ether, right? Yeah, the tools are there. It's just we need to make it happen. And I think that's that's may, maybe as well something that needs to happen is, hey, creating a movement that's accelerating something like that. How do we yeah. do something collectively? It would be interesting to explore that. Well, we might also want to recognize that a lot of people are fundamentally uh, leisure seekers too. Like yeah. all of us, the most manic of us, I think, still are kind of lazy at the same time, right? Uh, do you remember, this is like throwback for a while ago, there used to be a screensaver that the SETI Institute created. And what they did was you could 
download this app that would be a screensaver. And they would send you data packets from their radio telescope and your computer would process it when it was in screensaver mode. And they would okay. send back the process packet and get another packet, right? And at the time I thought of that saying, that's actually quite clever. They're networking this idea that we're all searching for extraterrestrial life. I don't want to necessarily do anything because hmm. I'm lazy, but I'm happy to give you my unused computer cycles to help you do the thing you're trying to do. So it may even be things like that where passively we are willing to, you know, contribute resources in some way that are otherwise more or less free to us uh, in search of something bigger, right? Like, again, like not everybody's going to like chain themselves to a, a tree that's an old growth tree to prevent from being cut down. But is there another way we can activate those people to do some kind of micro transaction that furthers that cause? And, and that's an interesting thing to consider. Like, you know, we, we, there's so much we haven't thought of yet with all these tools at our disposal. We're, we're just using the tools for the narrow thing they've been designed for, not thinking laterally yet, because there's always more tools as well. So, again, an interesting time. There's just not enough hours in the day, I think, to really explore all the things we can do now. Yeah. You know, Talking about resources, I would like to get a little bit of understanding of what you do with Shred Capital. So sure. how, how do you how do you work with startups? How do you work with entrepreneurs? And how, how do you see this helping towards as well that direction we just talked about? Well, we like to look at, I mean, as part of this conversation, we like to look at the operators of the company as one of the first and most important mm. uh, judgment points. Like we're not betting on the horse, we want to bet on the jockey. So we look for people that are, in it for what we think are the sustainable reasons, the long-term reasons. Mm -hmm. What people often don't tell uh, folks when they're starting an undertaking, it's not 18 months to IPO and then riches, right? And a beach in Barbados, it's not how it works. If you're starting a company, you're married to it for five, seven, 10 years mm -hmm. uh, in some cases, if it's successful or even if it's kind of successful, you know? Uh, and so you have to really fundamentally care about the problem you're impacting. It's got to mean something to you, right? Maybe it's not your life's ambition and pursuit, but it still has to be relevant to you and meaningful. So we tend to really focus on that. And the way that our methodology works, um, it's a little different. We're not in a capital rich environment uh, like a Seattle or a Silicon Valley where, okay, there's so much money floating around, just grab as much as you can and just <laughs> run for the exit. Uh, we tend to look at diligence through working with our founders through a number of diligence programs, uh, things like filing for a patent, for example, or doing uh, research and development tax credit preparation, like doing sort of the third-party analysis to qualify for these non-dilutive capital programs that might aid their growth. Like we're trying to see how they work in action, which ones stick with it, which ones are sending me emails at two in the morning, which ones are kind of missing their deadlines or their homework or kind of punch out because they don't want to go through the process. And that tells us a lot about the company because we can see how the founders operate. Mm -hmm. And so it, it saves time. People kind of self-select that way. So we're not judging based on a pitch deck, financials and personality. We really want to work with these companies for six, 12 months to see how they operate add value along the way, help them get stronger. Uh, typically, again, you know, unless you're in Silicon Valley or Seattle or someplace, 
these companies will not have a complete team. You know, mm-hmm. their team along the top of the org chart won't be a list. So we take them from raw to hopefully uh, crazily investable in no time, but it's really working through that process with them. Because uh, it, it is that marathon, it's not a sprint necessarily. And if people don't have the staying power, it, it tends to show up. It doesn't show up right away, but you tend to get that sense after a while. Yeah. So I'd say of the companies that we've been working with so far, the five that I think are like, okay, they, they've got all the ingredients, right? But that's after working with them for six or eight months. And there's probably many others that uh, don't have what it takes yet. And some may never get there, hmm. right? But I think that's also important because speaking kind of karmically, I guess, uh, if people are founding a company and they're not good at it, that's okay, right? Uh, learning that lesson is actually quite useful for them so that they can join another company that yeah. wants to make the same change with the lessons they've learned and kind of the deepened human capital that they have to help make those contributions. I think in some ways uh, there's almost too many startups out there that are too thin. And if you can actually collapse them into stronger startups, they'll run further and faster. Yeah. I, I really love that team and, and founders perspective. And I don't, I'm not at all into that space, but I just see working with and having businesses my own is you see a huge difference of people who are going and as I call it all in, which mm-hmm. means, Hey, you're doing the hours and whatever is required to get this off. And if you're not doing that, it's not taking off or yeah. it is staying very, very, very small and you're missing out everything else. Mm. Um, I just see that over and over again, mm-hmm. that is always this kind of, at least in the early stages of companies, let's say maybe the first two years, you, you need to have this drive to say, hey, I'm not going on holiday. And if I'm going on holiday, then I'm working there. <laughs> These yeah. kind of things. And if, it, if, if it's required, I will work Saturday, Sunday, day and night. Well, it's even, and I'm actually quite conscious of this uh, now about using the term work, right? Because uh, of the connotation. Like when I talk to my four-year-old, I don't say I'm going to work. I don't say I'm working on something, mm-hmm. right? If I was working in a grocery store, I would call that work, right? Uh, but you're right. It's, it's that you're engaged with the idea, whether it's a Saturday or a Sunday. Like if you find yourself on a Sunday evening thinking about your project, writing down ideas, sending an email, then you're in the right mental space to, to do the things that you need to do. I mean, you need to recharge, but you know, it's not a death march. You're engaged in it because you want to be engaged in it. And I think for founders, when they find that that is going away, that's a huge tell. Like you've been out for a couple of years through your company, you haven't quite hit, you haven't quite failed, but it starts to feel like work. Yeah, I love big, that. Big tell. I, so, I love that. And I just see it for myself. I don't I don't see it as work, what, uh, what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. For me, I love the process, just having fun with it. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's the key. Like you've internalized in some ways, like, you know, yeah. like I don't have a Shred Capital t-shirt, all right? <laughs> you've got a t-shirt, 
you know, like you're doing the, these pods that are wonderful, right? And you're connecting all the meaning back into your core practice. And it's a virtuous cycle, yeah. right? And that's, I think, that's what we all need in our life is that concept of flow, where it's not work. You're just, you find this blissful, productive state, right? And that just carries you forward. I mean, it, it's tough, though, to explain to people that maybe haven't quite connected with that. I mean, I've, you know, I, I've had partners in the past that have looked at how I do stuff and they're like, when do you turn off? And I'm like, I, I'm not supposed to. Like, yeah, if, exactly. I, if turn off mode, I'm not doing something right. We have a, a, a fun story. So I, I, I moved back to Germany last last summer when, when we lived abroad for the last six, seven years. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm now literally in the home in my hometown again, meeting all my buddies from school time. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a German saying, when you have your own business, then you are working 24 seven. Um, so just the, the name, how, how you say that is, so it, it's like you work yourself, and, and you, you work continuously if you translate it properly. And mm. they're always saying, but yeah, but it's like, you're really working like 24 seven, like yourself and the whole time. Do you have any time off? You say, no. It's like, but yeah, no, that's, it's completely different. Well, they, they don't understand that. And I, it's, it's nothing bad that they don't understand. They're just in a different place in their life and where they want to be. Well, and even the places where they're working, perhaps, haven't embraced a, or haven't discovered a paradigm that would allow them to feel that way. Oh, no, I can you tell know? you. And that's, <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's tricky, too. I mean, but you're right. Like, uh, I started a company in 2007 called Zeros to Heroes. Huh. And it was a uh, social crowdsourced network to help people who wanted to create comic books create comic books. Okay, so not curing cancer, right? Not, not socially terribly valid, but such an enjoyable process you know the, the, the people that were our clients the user service were delightful to to deal with and to actually see the fruits of their labors come to life and kind of hang out with these people it's just it never felt like work it always felt like just sort of somehow we were getting paid to to play and be creative and just build cool things for people that we thought were cool you know so uh, again like that's ideal you're not always going to find that stuff but you can always find meaning you know and i i, I tell people when you find meaning in your work right that's the most important thing. It doesn't matter what you're doing or yeah. what company you're with. You can create that sense of meaning at your own cubicle or with your own department. That sense of, you know, we're here because of something. Maybe it's each other. Maybe it's the product. Maybe we're doing something new. But if you can make people feel connected that way to, an, to a personal sense of purpose, then you are, you're changing your culture. You're changing yeah. your mindset. You know, you're not grumbling about work anymore you're 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 working on the problem you know you're trying to overcome something right and i, I think we're made as a, as a as a species to do hard things you know I, I think that we enjoy doing physical things like i moan and gripe about you know going for a run or going to the gym or whatever but you always feel better once you do it yeah, right? yeah. and that's that's again psychologically a big tell yeah and i think it, it, it's as well interesting for you then you, you will feel the difference if you work with the capital side and supporting entrepreneurs and startups in that world you you will feel the difference of a founder who is like invested 24 7 into his idea her idea mm. business and so on so you recognize it because yeah. you've walked it yeah like you can't fake it you can fake it but if you've done it it's very hard to fake it 
right? The, the, the one thing I try to do though, is I try to avoid saying no to people, uh-huh. right? I, I think no is a crushing word, right? I mean, as an investor, you can't back every company. You can't do every deal. You just, it's not how it works. But if you look at it as like a mentorship and you say, listen, we're, we're going to develop a relationship here. And maybe in the first six months of that relationship, we're not going to do a whole lot together, but let's work on something so that it's, it's, it's valuable, right? So that it helps your company take a few steps. Because if I don't want to necessarily, or I'm not in a position to necessarily get right behind what you're doing right now, don't take that as a rejection. Don't take that as an as a sense of it's not for you or it's not going to work, right? What do I know? I mean, you know, there's lists of investors, like some companies will post lists of deals they passed on. Like, oh, we could have been into Uber. We could have been into Dropbox. We, we passed on, you know, stumble upon. Like tons of investors have just missed on things. But, you know, for, for founders, and I've been there, like, bringing forth this idea with all the backing information and why it makes sense and getting the no is, you know, it's tough and you're going to hear a lot of no's, right? So it's more, if you recognize that someone is on the journey and they're sincere, even if you have to, even if you can't give them what they're looking for in that moment, you can give them something useful, right? And that helps them a bit on their journey, right? So that's, that's something I think that, you know, in terms of the discussion around it, I think the, the better investors, like the new contemporary generation of uh, venture investors, have more of that feeling. Even when they're giving a no, it's contextualized. It's not just ghosting somebody and like, oh, they won't return my calls now. I guess the meeting went bad. It's more of a, well, hey, you know, when you hit this point, you're going to see things open up. So how do you get to that point? Yeah. Right? Or this thing you're doing is a distraction, you know? focus on getting to this place. And once you get to that place, it's going to feel a lot different. Yeah. But also, you know, you get old enough, get enough gray in your beard. That becomes more of your role naturally, I think, is to kind of go, hey, you know, I understand what you're facing. You know, here's my two cents. Yeah, that's cool. Love that. I would like us to get towards the, the last part of the podcast, which is a couple of rapid fire questions. And they're fairly small, but big. <laughs> sure. and they're a little bit out of context now so if you would have a chance to work with a project um, or lead a project that's impacting every human being on earth what project would it be and why would you choose to to lead or work with that project Ooh. every human being on earth well I think for me it would have to be something connected to climate change Right. And again, I know that feels like kind of a pat answer, but, you know, there are few problems that I think are confronting us so holistically and we're seeing it right now. And it seems like we don't get it. You know, the pandemic, we all got pretty quickly, like aside from a few kind of uh, oddball people in the early months, I think we all kind of got it pretty quickly. Uh, we seem to think it doesn't matter when it comes to the climate change thing. And it may sound Like we've heard it now for years and years and years and nothing seems like it's changed. But, you know, the fact is we are capable of doing great things. And I think if you can find ways to get people excited and motivated and incentivized to take this on as a positive undertaking, you know, like the same kind of energy we felt when we suddenly realized the internet was a thing, right? That the web was going to be a thing that, you know, that social media was going to be a thing that games outstripped Hollywood, 
and we're going to be a thing, right? Somehow we have to manufacture that excitement, that sense of, you know, we are going to change things and the world's going to be a better place. And unfortunately, I think sometimes climate change or environmentalists come across as a bit dour, like a bit, well, you can't eat meat anymore. You know, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's not a great opener, you know, for a conversation, right? It's, you know, it may be 100% true. There was actually a green politician uh, here in Vancouver who came out with this uh, notion that we should forbid balloons at children's birthday parties in parks. Because the balloons, of course, if a aquatic fowl were to eat the balloon, it would be terrible for the aquatic fowl. But I said, listen, you know, that is the worst brand for the Green Party I can imagine yeah. is no birthday balloons. Like, it's just, I get it, you're, you're kind of right, but it's not a good opener. So if you could be the person that could actually change that, I think that'd be fascinating to be in a position where the way we approach it is not this dour inscrutableness. I mean, but more, you know what, we're going to just flip the table on this uh, and, and make the world a better place and have a lot of fun doing it. Like, again, you know, you're having fun. You are in flow, like with your business. That transmits itself to the people around you and whatever that walk of life is. I just don't think we found that place yet. There's still too much, you know, we, we can't be friends because we don't agree 100%. Well, maybe agreeing 80% is enough to get started. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. Sorry, kind of a boring answer. But, you no, know, it's yes, good. It's good. Our world, it's good. That's kind of where my head goes, right? that's the good thing with the podcast there's no wrong answer boring maybe not wrong but yeah, boring so next one is where will you be in a year from now and you can answer that on a personal level and or business you know it's funny i used to do that every year my birthday i would write down a note hmm. of where i thought it would be in a year's time right and uh <clears throat> and i was always dead wrong i, I never got it right Always wrong, right? <laughs> so um, it was, uh, so in year's time from now, I hope we're all post-pandemic, by and large. That would be wonderful, mm -hmm. right? Uh, where I think I'll be, I'll probably still be in Vancouver, which is nice. I mean, I think about traveling sometimes or relocating, but uh, Vancouver is a good place to be. Uh, hard, to, hard to argue with that. Where I would like to be is actually like really moving the cycle ahead and have some very intriguing startups that are now moving ahead and making some noise and the mm -hmm. founders are seeing success and we can sort of point to that as a hey the system is working you know we designed a system for venture investing that's a little different and it's producing an outcome that is better like we've talked about our system now with banks and backers and different people and everyone said well, that's a really interesting thing you're designing there but to actually have the proof it's working to say guess what we found a way to get three percent more out of the system than was there mm -hmm. before. That's, that would be exciting. A again, you know, when you're younger, you think, okay, I've got to completely reinvent venture capital or it's worthless. Now being able to say, look, if we can just get 5% more out of the system, that's huge, right? And you probably see that with the work with corporates is you're not going to change GM overnight, but if you can move the needle two degrees, gigantic knock-on effect. Yeah, absolutely. How do Plus, you... uh, maybe I'm hoping that I'll still have like a, you know, a, a lush head of hair and still hopefully be in good shape and all that kind of stuff as well. I mean, that would be nice. Yeah, I can't manage that hair anymore. That's that's over <laughs> since a couple of years already. 
Oh, you wear it well. Like, you know, I actually said to people that kind of go for the, the Michael Jordan look, like, okay, you have a look now that's going to last you for the rest of your life. Exactly. Like, I can only go downhill. So, <laughs> how, how do you keep yourself informed and up to date? What are the different sources you, you kind of build your knowledge from? <laughs> well, really, QAnon is where I go to for most of my information. No, <laughs> kidding. Joke. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, I do a lot of listening on Twitter. Like I, I rarely post, I often listen there. And so Twitter, I think, kind of comes back to the original like Tim Berners-Lee idea of what the internet was supposed to be, mm -hmm. or what the web was supposed to be. It's like you're following the crumbs other people lay down for you. So if you're careful about who you follow, if you're very selective, right, mm -hmm. then I think you start to find the good stuff really quickly. It really, these people do act as kind of guides and navigators that take you through all the white noise. Right? So I find Twitter extremely useful for that. I think I've actually managed to completely break Facebook's algorithm with respect to me. I've just turned enough stuff off that I find Facebook almost useless now, which is what I hoped to do, was make it not part of my media diet anymore. I don't think I need it for anything now, <clears throat> except sharing baby photos, maybe. That's it. Uh, so I lean a bit on Twitter. I don't follow as many podcasts as I want to, to be honest with you, because there's some really good ones out there that I've got queued up to listen to. But, you know, because the pandemic's changed things, like there's no commuting time anymore, there's no business flights and things. That's where I used to consume the longer form content because I'm here and working immediacy becomes a little more important for me now. Mm. So I, I kind of miss the investment in longer form content, but I find I'm sampling stuff more by following people. And there's some really interesting people out there that, you know, you can get a lot out of very little. Like in Canada, there's a guy called Michael Geist, who's like a very accomplished, like a uh, digital rights attorney, great stuff, right? Uh, you know, there's people like William Gibson, who's a science fiction writer and a futurist. Uh, Corey Doctorow uh, is just prolific in the amount of stuff he puts out there. And, uh, you know, you, you can glean a fair bit uh, from those folks. So, yeah, I'm probably much more of a uh, lurker online as opposed to a publisher, right? And which is, I think, just a healthy practice for people that spend any time in the public eye. Like way back when I put my first website up, late 90s, I looked at the web logs and I was like, oh my God, I can see all the URLs or the domains where people came from to get to my website. And then I realized, oh my God, in the future, your digital footprint is going to be hugely revealing. So, you know, any wise person, I think, tries to, you know, to limit that. Awesome. Well, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast, Matt. Um, last question. Where can people find you? How can people reach out to you? Ah, well, you know, probably the single best place is on Twitter. At uh, Chief Zero is probably the best way. Uh, my company Shred Capital as well. But, you know, I've, kind of, I've had kind of a weird life. And so, you know, uh, People that talk to me come from a lot of different places and Twitter is probably the best place to find me regardless of where you, you happen to be. Yeah, I will put it as well into, into the show notes so people can click through straight away. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you very much for joining me this morning oh, on your side. My, ple my pleasure. Anytime. I'm going to go out now and see if I can enjoy a tiny bit of the sunshine before it rains again because, you know, in Vancouver, if there's 10 minutes of sun, you, you, you got to grab it. <laughs>